Gary McGraw is here, my old friend and software security guru. It's been way too long since I've gotten a chance to have Gary on the podcast. How's everything going, buddy? Things are going well. Uh, you know, I'm still extremely bad at being retired. Um, I've got a new institute doing machine learning security, and we've been doing that for about two years. We've got some big news coming up, but I can't share it with you yet. I'll share it with you in mid-January. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, that. I do want to talk to you about that machine learning stuff because that's pretty fascinating to me. And you're one of the only people I know who's kind of diving in deep on that uh, right now. I know there's other folks, but you're the one that I happen to know. Cool. Um, we're uh, recording this at a fortuitous time, given your software security <laughs> expertise. Um, this is the we're recording this on the Friday of the week that the solar winds breach uh, was disclosed and all the um, fallout from that is still falling out. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, given your software security background and also your uh, geographic location, not very far from D.C., what your initial reaction was when you saw the news and uh, what you thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing is that I'm just far enough away from DC. <laughs> um, I was really, I was really underwhelmed by the whole thing to tell you the truth. Not at all surprised. Um, and here's why there are a number of enterprise software security plays that are, that are really about, um, using software to provide some security function. They're often bought by IT people in operations security, um, and not enough attention is paid to the security of those systems themselves. Or put pithily, security software is not necessarily secure software. And as you and I both know, if you want to have a system really be secure, you have to build security in, including enterprise software stuff. So how's that for a mishmash of vocabulary? That's pretty good. That's, I mean, that's very on brand for you. And I, I appreciate that. I like it. Um, the thing that I thought about when I first saw this was kind of exactly the same thing that you just said, which is, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, if your advanced adversary with large budget in Eastern European country, this seems like a way that you would logically compromise a large portion of the targets that you want to go after in the Western Hemisphere. Especially so, knowing the fact that government IT is behind. I mean... You know, I've been saying this for almost a decade, but the government is really bad at software security. They've always been bad. They remain bad. There's nothing good about, you know, their approach to um, software assurance. It just, you know, there are too many lawyers in involved and too much bureaucracy involved and not enough technology. And so now, you know, cybersecurity risk is coming home to roost because it turns out that an army of lawyers can't stop you from being hacked. Only an army of software security people. Yeah. It, there's a, a few kind of side tangents there. I wanted to hit with you. Um, how much of 
the federal government, and we should say this, this doesn't just affect the federal government. There were private sector companies, and we have no idea who they were for most of them that were hit by this too. But yep. how much you of that lag time in the federal sector, Gary, do you think is just because the federal government moves slowly and how much of it is just a lack of understanding of what the priorities are? I think the moving slowly thing is probably the main component, Dennis, but you can't move slowly in high technology. I mean, the stuff that's happened in the last two years alone is changing the world very rapidly. And the government has never been designed to change that rapidly in terms of the way it approaches stuff, including regulation. So, you know, some people who say that we should regulate our way out of this computer security problem have no idea what they're talking about. Um, And I think it's unfortunate, but that's just the way governments have always been. By the way, there are some very good people in the government working on cybersecurity and computer security issues. It's just that the government bureaucracy itself is not set up to be nimble and um, is approaching the networkification of everything um, too slowly and not with, with, with not enough uh, forward thinking security engineering. Yeah. And I, I know some of those people and I know, you know, some of them too. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that those people don't tend to stay very long. Um, they yeah. either get, you know, they run into a, one of any one of a variety of walls, whether it's, you know, they get frustrated with the bureaucracy, they're not making enough money, or yep. they're frustrated, they can't get done what they know needs to be done. Yeah, you know? I mean, I, I, I just to be frank about it, I found this problem working for a huge corporation, after my little startup, um, which was no longer little, got purchased by a Silicon Valley firm, and I had to work for a big bureaucracy that was a public company. <laughs> Same thing. I mean, just organizations that have more than uh, 10,000 people must be a problem to make nimble. I, that's probably true. I mean, once you get to a certain size, it, it becomes difficult to get anything done quickly. And not that software security is something you want to do quickly, but it is something you want to prioritize. And once you realize that this is a problem we need to address, you want to do it quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, building security in is the only solution here. And if we're clever, maybe we can invent some sort of software security arms race so that we're racing our adversaries like the Russians or maybe the Chinese or maybe the Iranians um, to build more secure systems. And the only way out of that is not is not really offense, it's defense. We can afford as a society to spend more money designing more secure systems and implementing them for all aspects of our society in the West. And if we do that, we can outspend the bad guys again. And so we should absolutely do that. Um, I, I hope that that's the result of this. Um, regarding the politicization of, say, cybersecurity in the government, you need look no further than the Chris Krebs debacle, where the CISA guy who spent lots and lots of effort making sure that our election was secure, mostly by making everybody use paper ballots that we can recount, probably saved democracy. <laughs> and, you know, w- 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 
that that just sort of goes to show you that it took us 20 years to figure out that if you print out a piece of paper, you can look at it again later, as opposed to just, you know, checking your computer register to see whether it has the same number as, as it had last week. Um, and it's it's sort of simple things like that that can help us with security engineering so that um, we can we can survive when when somebody goes after our systems. Yeah, the, the CISA thing was extremely uh, kind of depressing. Is not the right word, and I mean it was something that I think a lot of people saw coming. Unfortunately, yeah. it was just you, know, you you looked at it and you're like, well, of course this is what's going to happen now because they're going to burn bridges on the way out. But yep, but you get you get you, you get somebody who is a very competent. Um, executive who came from, in this case, Microsoft, who came from a large enterprise who understands IT and the speed of IT in ways that most people associated with the government do not. And they don't last because political bullshit gets in the way. That drives me crazy as an American Um, and not just as a liberal American, but just as a plain old American. (laughs) Yeah, you and me both. Um, so for people who don't know, you spent uh, a greater portion of your career helping organizations, some of the biggest and most influential organizations in the world, build software security programs or, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure you have better words for it than I do. Just initiatives, um, just because the term program is over overloaded. Okay. Yeah. And I know there were a lot of, uh, you used to put out a report every year on kind of uh, the common, you know, capabilities that you would see across these organizations. Yep. Have you seen anything like that happen inside the federal government space? A little bit. I mean, there are a number of organizations that talk about software security a lot, um, but not enough has actually been done to cause the vendors that are providing services, especially cloud services to the government to think about software security at the application level. Um, And as a result, you end up with ridiculously bad security design, uh, like what we saw with these Orion products, um, which are supposed to be a security feature, but ended up being so stupidly um, implemented that they were pretty easy to hack. So I've, I've heard a lot of stuff about you know, super sophisticated nation state, ba uh, You know what? We just have got to build better software. And um, we have to have ways of understanding when software starts going off the rails and doing stuff it shouldn't do. Um, it should be possible to design a system that doesn't have to phone home all the time or phone random servers all over the net all the time. <laughs> makes it hard to see when the thing is misbehaving. And, you know, there's some obvious pieces of security design. Like if you do federated identity, don't be surprised if your identity gets popped, if that turns out to be a huge problem because your identity can be used all over the place. And so we see endpoints where Microsoft Cloud stuff, probably credentials were stolen and gotten reused. And so, you know, you say, well, Microsoft says, well, we didn't get hacked. And it's like, no, somebody intentionally misused your bad authentication system 
in order to, to carry out some stuff they probably shouldn't have been authorized to do. Because our design is, is still very close to the old trope from the old days that you'll remember, crunchy on the outside and chewy in the middle, kind of M&M level security. Where once you crack the shell, in this case, it's not a firewall, but in this case, it's rather an authentication mechanism for federated identity. Once you're inside, everything changes. Um, We need to design high assurance systems and high security systems so that uh, they work well, even when an adversary is an insider. That's our only hope. And we've known this for the whole time. Yeah, that's 100% true. And, you know, one of the things that I used to hear from uh, developers or security folks, you know, I'd say maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago, when software security still wasn't, you know, maybe as mainstream as it is now, Uh is they'd say, well, listen, we don't have the right people to run a software security program like that. We also don't have the budget. Yep. I don't feel like, like, the right people probably isn't a valid excuse anymore. Those people exist. Yep. Like, and there's a decent number of them, but how much is the budget part of that argument uh, valid at this point? Well, is it more expensive to build secure software than it is to build shitty software? Look, uh, it, it's certainly more expensive to get popped and have to react <laughs> to having all of your stuff stolen and your systems have to be completely wiped and restarted from scratch and God knows what the adversary has is way more expensive than spending a little money up front to make better software. And we're very bad at that kind of risk management decision. We're not so good at insurance policies as consumers and you know, so that's the sort of thinking that that's leading to this problem. How to properly manage risk, how to put the right controls in place is something that we do know how to do. We're just not doing that everywhere. And we're especially not doing that in the government. No. And I, I wonder, I mean, you, you like to have a little optimism going into a, you know, a administration change, but Especially one, especially one like this where we're going from complete incompetence to at least some measure of competence. Yes, one would hope. Yeah. Um, how? What's your level of optimism that, you know, I know there are some good people in place in D.C. to, to affect yeah. change. Yep. Um, but it, the question is where that might fall on the priority list. But given what's happened this week, I, I have a feeling it might rise up. That <laughs> I sure hope so. You know, uh, that I do have a lot of respect for people who will um, take some time to go and work with the government and try to get things on track. I just don't have enough patience myself to do that. I can't even do it in a big corporation. So, you know, I'm doing what I typically do now that I'm retired. I'm wandering off into the jungle with my machete and later, maybe people will build some train tracks in a little town <laughs> where I am on my path with my machete. That's what happened with software security. I finally waited around long enough for for the train tracks to be built, but I didn't stay in town. I was like, I got to get back out there in the jungle. And now it's machine learning. So once again, we have a piece of technology that's going to fundamentally change the way humans do stuff in all domains, um, once we have these, this machine learning capability 
exploited the way that it could be. Um, and there are some inherent risks that are in the systems we're building now. Um, we're going to adopt this technology incredibly quickly, just as quickly as we adopted the internet or cell phone technology, mobile phones, both of which are straight up curves. And when adoption curves are so straight from a slope perspective, you know, approaching one uh, straight up, they're not um, the government, which usually takes 100 years to, to kind of catch up, doesn't have time to figure out how to regulate that. If you think about this is something that Dan Gear has said a lot, so I'm stealing his idea. But if you think about how long it took for the telephone to be adopted, that was about a century. And electricity was maybe 70 years and took a long time. So the government had plenty of time to kind of have society figure out how we were going to react to those new technologies. Now technology gets adopted really, really fast. And we've got to come up with better ways to um, think about things like emergent properties like security as we adopt this technology. Okay, so that was a professional segue into the the machine learning part of the podcast. So, Gosh, it's like I've done um, this for twenty five years. <laughs> <laughs> it almost is, uh, and like it, so, the number of pitches that I get in my inbox every week that involve some sort of machine learning, even if it has no application to what they're talking about, is yeah. like incalculable. I can only imagine so, the hype. Yep. It's awful. It's the same as AI. You know, like there, I'm seeing, you see commercials like during NFL games that involve AI and you know, nobody knows what the hell they're talking about. So right, right. when, how would you define machine learning for people that definitely, you know, may not completely understand what the term means? Yeah. So here's the tricky bit. Um, when we started doing AI in the fifties and sixties, um, AI was this big field and machine learning was a tiny little part of it. And deep learning was an even smaller dot inside of the machine learning dot. Uh, and then around the eighties, things changed. So machine learning eighties and nineties, machine learning took up a lot more of the space, but deep learning was still a pretty little dot. Now machine learning and AI and deep learning are used as the same terminology by the press. So the press will say AI when they really mean deep learning. The press will say machine learning when they really mean deep learning. So um, there are many other aspects of artificial intelligence and machine learning that don't involve convolution networks and deep learning networks. But that's what we're talking about in the press these days, mostly. So I'd say, you know, when somebody says AI, they probably mean deep learning. Um, and a way to think about that is, We've built these systems that are auto-associative predictive systems that take a bunch of input-output patterns and they learn how to predict you know, what future patterns are going to be like. And that's the way vision works. That's the way natural language processing works. That's the way uh, playing games like Go works. Uh, and if we figure out how to represent our our, our uh, I don't know, auto-associative input-output pairs properly, we can train machines to do this automatically. What's happened in the last 25 years is that computers have gotten way, way faster, way, way faster, and data sets have gotten way, way bigger. And I mean way, way bigger. 
So some of this stuff that we're talking about today, I was doing in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, neural networks with recurrent things and multiple layers. And they would eat computers alive. We would do it on deck alpha and still eat it alive or connection machine. (laughs) These days, computers are so much faster that even with very similar approaches using backpropagation, gradient descent, other learning algorithms, we can do much more uh, impressive stuff. Um, with these systems. That doesn't mean that they're intelligent in the same way that humans are, by the way. They're not. But what we can get away with with an auto-associated predictive network is just absolutely astounding to me. So one of the things I wanted to look into is how much real progress have we made in the last 25 years in machine learning? And the answer is pretty much, but mostly because computers are faster and data sets are bigger. Um, and then, of course, because I am who I am, I started thinking about security as soon as I started leading, reading the literature. And uh, we formed an institute called the Berryville Institute of Machine Learning. We put out a, an important report about a year ago, um, almost a year ago now, about uh, 78 risks in machine learning systems. And that work is getting some, getting some very good airplay at places that matter like Microsoft and Google and Amazon and other places where a lot of machine learning is going on. And there are people talking about this stuff. I hope that we can um, move the conversation from attack of the day stuff, just like in the early days of software security to secure design stuff. We still need to make progress in security engineering design and security analysis at the architectural level. Even in software security, we have work to do. The cool thing is, if we do that work for machine learning now, we can show the power of thinking about architecture while you're building systems, while you're designing systems from the very beginning. And I'm super psyched to be doing some of that work. It's a blast. We're having so much fun uh, at BIML. So what are the the main security risks you mentioned that you had 78 in that report if you had to you know tease out a few of the major ones out of that pile um, well i mean the main security risks? i mean of course since we identified 78 risks we knew that the world would have way too small of a of a what would you say attention span to talk about all 78 so one of the things that we did in the report was we created a top 10 list um and uh, in, instead of, but 10 is still too many for a podcast. So why don't we boil it down to five? <laughs> Sounds good. Let's do it. So, so here are the top five machine learning risks, according to Bimmel. These are five of 78 risks. And you might've heard of some of these because they are pretty well understood and covered in the press. The first one, especially, which is called adversarial examples, probably the most commonly discussed attack where you fool a machine learning system by providing malicious input, often involving very small perturbations to the input that cause the system to make false predictions or categorizations. And so um, there's a lot of coverage of that sort of adversarial input problems, adversarial examples. Probably the most famous is the stop sign where they put some tape on it at University of Michigan and had the machine learning system say it was a speed limit 45 sign. Um, It turns out that behind this adversarial example problem are issues with what has come to be known as underspecification 
um, in our machine learning systems where when we're trying to build an auto-associated predictor out of a bunch of I.O., um, input-output stuff, we end up under-specifying um, the functions that fit our training data. Uh, and they do surprising things when we get outside of our kind of sampling distribution. That's a complicated way of saying we don't really understand how these systems represent stuff and how they actually work. So if we make small perturbations, sometimes that makes a big change in behavior of our machine learning system that surprises the people that built the machine learning system. And uh, if you're doing something like, oh, I don't know, let's say automated vision using LIDAR for a safety system for an automated, for a self-driving car, you can see where this can go. Yeah. That's one. This is one of the, okay. (laughs) And that's one that really worries me because as you said, we don't really understand how these systems work and you're one of the smartest people I know. So if, like, do the people who are designing these systems fully understand how they're going to work and what the implications of them are? We understand the math. We understand mathematically how they do what they do and why they do it. Um, but the representations that they end up building inside of themselves in these many, many layers of neurons that are massively distributed, um, we don't understand that well. Uh, and since we don't understand them, what, what we do is we say, well, we'll train it up on this data. And we'll test it and verify it on those data, a different set. Um, and then we're going to put it out in the real world and hope that any data that it gets work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's interesting, but it leads to a very important point, which is number two. That is data poisoning. If you train up a machine learning system on bad stuff, it will learn it. And there are some spectacular examples of this. Probably the most famous one is Microsoft Tay, which was a Twitter chat bot that Microsoft released that was supposed to interact with other people on Twitter and learn how to be a cool Twitter person. But instead, what it learned was to be become a xenophobic, racist, asshole troll. <laughs> And it's what Twitter teaches a lot of people. Exactly. It learned it so fast that Microsoft had to turn it off because it was just embarrassing. (laughs) But this goes to show that data play an absolutely outsized role in the security of any machine learning system because it's data that are used to train the system in the first place. So not only do we have to think about the mechanisms like backpropagation and the architecture like convolution networks, but we have to pay way more attention to the data we use to train these things up than ever before. In my view, data account for about 60% of the risk in modern machine learning systems. And if you think about it, if an attacker can intentionally manipulate the data being used by an ML system in a sort of coordinated fashion, the entire system can be utterly compromised. And data poisoning attacks like this require special attention. You have to ask yourself, what fraction of the training data can an attacker control? And to what extent can they control it? And what happens if they feed bad data into the system in production or training or different times of the system life cycle. These are all problems that are very thorny and super important to machine learning security. 
Yeah, and it's always difficult to know what attackers are thinking about, but to me, that problem right there seems like one that high-level attackers would certainly be well aware of, if not already trying to exploit. Yeah, I mean, you know, attackers like to attack systems through input often. And so adversarial examples are attacking a machine learning system through its input. Um, But training data is also an input. So we should fully expect attackers to to think about data poisoning attacks. We've seen that and we we have to design against that. So that's two out of 78. The third one involves... uh, machine learning systems that are online. They're said to be online when they continue to learn during operational use. So um, in traditional machine learning, you have a a system where you train it up and then you are done with the training and then you field it and you operate it, but it's not learning anything more. An online system, on the other hand, you train it up and then you release it and operationally you continue to train it like Tay. So um, that... (laughs) leads to problems where a clever attacker might nudge a still learning system in the wrong direction on purpose. So we slowly retrain a machine learning system to do the wrong thing. Um, And it just like do to do goes down the garden path and learns to do something bad. Um, This is a very complicated risk because it, it demands that machine learning engineers think about where data comes from data provenance algorithm choice, which algorithms are using to do the training and systems operations where they watch the system being trained while it's out there in the world doing whatever it's supposed to do in order to properly address it. And that's hard even for people who've been steeped in security engineering their entire life. Um, I guess by analogy, you might think about it as how you might secure a virtual machine that can do Turing complete computation you know, once it's extensible in all directions, it's like, oh, darn, we accidentally let Pandora, we let the cat out of Pandora's box. Now what are we supposed to do? So right. so uh, online system manipulation is number three. So that's three out of 78. What do we got for number four? Well, number four is transfer learning. One of the things that's challenging about machine learning systems is that they're expensive to build and train mostly because computational cycles cost money. So if you want an example of that, there's a very famous natural language processing system put out by OpenAI called GPT-3. GPT-3 was released a few months ago, and it cost $12.5 million to train. Um, It was trained on literally billions and billions of examples, and it has lots and lots of layers and networks uh, uh, neural network that's very big. Um, And so when something costs that much to train up, you obviously want to reuse that work as much as possible. So machine learning people have learned to transfer the brains of a neural network from one neural network to another and then kind of refine the training. That's called transfer learning. Um, And transfer learning itself is susceptible to all sorts of security issues. In many cases in the real world, if an ML system's constructed by taking advantage of an already trained base model, then whatever that base model has in it in terms of risk comes right along for the ride. So it makes unanticipated behavior 
um, defined by an attacker possible through, say, trojaning. If you uh, train up a neural network and you release it with some Trojan functionality in it, and everybody just uses it because it's open source and they don't they want they don't want to start from ground zero. Uh, that can lead to all sorts of nefarious attacks. I mean, it's just like running random software you found in the men's room. Don't do it. So, <laughs> so, so you know the the machine learning community is very open and they share a lot they share code they share open source globs all the time they're not thinking about security cuz that's not what they're kind of focused on and that is going to lead to a right. bunch of risk so who else is involved in this effort Gary aside from you and and your you know I'm not sure exactly who else you're working with but, yeah. but I assume that there's you mentioned some of the large, you know, uh, groups like Microsoft and Google. And yeah. Amazon. Yep. Yep. And also Facebook has a group. So there are there are groups in these companies that are doing um, lots of research in applied machine learning security. There are other organizations that are mostly academic. There are a bunch of academics that are focused on this, like Patrick McDaniel or David Evans or. Uh, um, Paper Knot from Toronto. Um, and, you know, the the real trick is that as we adopt this technology, it's not academia that's going to lead the way in security engineering. And it probably better not be Google if we're worried about, say, privacy. <laughs> so we need some institutions that are going, hey, everybody, don't forget about this. And that's why we formed Bimble. I'm not really aware of any other little organizations like ours that are so laser focused on machine learning security yet, but there will be more, I'm sure. Yeah, there are. I mean, what was the software security field like when you wrote software security? You, well, when I wrote software security, that was 2007. So that was probably... Okay, sorry, the, the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 1999 was the first one, Building Secure Software. It was pretty small. Yeah. There were about 30 of us and we all knew each other and a lot of them were academics. So, you know, that's grown into a probably four to $10 billion industry right now. It's about a 10th of the size of computer security as a whole space in, in my estimation. So it's a real industry, but it's not that huge. Right. Yet. I mean, that's, that's not peanuts. No, but we'll see we'll see the same thing happen in machine learning security, but machine learning is going to have a much deeper, you know, impact on the world than everybody's imagining yet. Um I think that if you're thinking about the future and future tech, machine learning is kind of number 1 and number 2 is quantum computing. And then when you put those two together, God knows what's going to uh, happen. <laughs> that makes my brain hurt. I like every time I see the word quantum, there's some part of my brain that just shuts off. I'm like, nope, I don't <laughs> understand that. <laughs> I can't do it. Right. Well, let me tell you one more machine learning risk just for fun. It is it. data confidentiality. So remember, we're training these machines up on training data. And if some of those data have confidential information, like, say, medical records or PII or the crown jewels of your corporation's behavior or whatever, then all that information gets shoved into the brain of the machine learning system. And the question is, 
can an attacker uh, use any sort of way to extract that? And there are a number of subtle but effective extraction attacks against machine learning systems data. So we have some issues like how do you apply GDPR to a machine learning system? And the answer is we don't know. That sounds right. <laughs> yeah, the answer is nobody's really sure. So that's so this is just absolutely a total blast to be working on this stuff. That's number five of 78. So we've covered five. There are 73 other risks that we won't talk about. Um, Gary, how much are you guys looking at like the ethics of all of this? Is that in your scope? It is a little. It's very difficult to... Think about things like discrimination and bias in these systems um, and make any progress. And what we've run into is a little bit discouraging. There are the social justice people that are making that really want to make sure that life is fair and unbiased. Um, and then there are the math people and the statisticians, and they just don't speak the same language. Um, so there's a little bit of work. There's a paper we read last week that we were impressed with where the result was basically this. The guy said, let me see if I can think, find his name. Uh, no, I can't. The, the guy basically said, um, look, there are these three goals that you have um, in systems that in the literature about anti-discrimination or bias. But if you put those three goals together... Um, and you describe them mathematically, you can prove that they can't coexist. So what do you want? You can't have all three of these things in a system. So what do you want? <laughs> and, and you can't take, you know, when you take math like that to social justice land, people just get mad. They're like, it's not fair. You know, uh, these systems are racist and they're biased and they're, they're misogynistic in the following ways. And so we have to make math different. And you look at them like, what do you mean make math different? <laughs> um, yeah, so, I'm not good at math, but I don't think it's mutable. Well, so we have this, so we have this disconnect. And, and that's what I feel about the, the kind of the bias field right now is we haven't come up with the way in the light that will marry um, reasonable mathematics and um, thinking about ethics and morality together properly. And that needs to happen. But there are people thinking about that in these organizations. Oh, yeah. And some of them get fired, like the woman who was just fired from, from Google um, recently, yeah. which is the big flap on Twitter. You've probably seen that go by. Um, I did. So, I did. so, you know, so, so these are tricky issues um, where uh, uh, there are high passions on all sides and the passions are there because we're talking about ethics and we're talking about how systems ought to behave. Um, but, you know, that's not what we're focused on at BIML. I, I'm much more focused on um, system engineering and the math and how we can make the math behave in our favor, um, not from a bias perspective, but just from a security perspective. Security is easier than ethics. <laughs> I think that's abundantly clear. Yes. And security is not easy. So no, that tells you how hard ethics is. And not only that, you should, you should, you should have some clue about ethics when you do security design. Otherwise you're going to end up accidentally building evil things. 
right. Uh, which has happened. Yeah. Yep. Um, so now that we've covered all the heavy stuff, I want to talk about fun stuff. Cool. What, how's, how's your, how's your music going? Oh, I knew you were going to bring that up. So we have not played together since March 19th. Um, and, and we really, really miss that. There's no way to really perform and play on the net with, you know, different lags and different, it just doesn't work. It's not the same. Yeah. So we are just like everyone else in a holding pattern, waiting for the world to get back to normal and looking at our, the politicization of a global pandemic and just thinking, what is wrong with these idiots? Why do they understand this is not medicine and a pandemic we could all solve if we didn't politicize this? Uh, And so I'm really looking forward to some actual leadership in this country um, starting on the 20th of January. And I just can't wait. I I feel like I've been holding my breath for four years. And what I, you know, furthermore, I I don't like to be super political because I'm not that political of a person, generally speaking. I am a liberal but um, but I just cannot believe how backwards things have gotten in this country that I have so much I'm so proud of most of the time. Now I'm just appalled by it. So I'm looking forward to getting back to being grownups and I'm looking forward to cutting my hair, which I haven't done in four years. Oh, man, I wish we were doing a video uh, portion of this because... <laughs> It's going to be pretty, uh, I, as someone who doesn't have any hair, I'm always jealous of, uh, I, I see my friends on these video calls that have this wild, you know, COVID mane. Yeah. It's like, oh man. Yeah. Mine isn't even a COVID mane. Mine is a Trump mane. <laughs> oh, it's just like a protest mane. Yep. I, I like it. So even with the, I know you've got like a, a barn on your property there where you guys used to play. So you couldn't even, it's not big enough to kind of space things out. Well, I have a cabin actually that I bought a couple of years ago for uh, music. And it's also where I have my office. Coincidentally, I'm not there today because yeah. I'm snowed out. Um, I could drive there on the roads, but I couldn't get down the driveway or I could get down it, but not back up it. <laughs> you gotta get I know where you are. Like, as someone who grew up in Virginia, I know you don't have four-wheel drive. Yeah, I do have four-wheel drive, but there's just, it's no, like, it's the mountain. So um, so we actually have a permanent band setup situation at the cabin where we can all just kind of come and plug our instruments in. The soundboard's up, the sound system's wired, and we're just ready to go. So I really miss that. I was playing at least twice a week out there before the pandemic, and I cannot wait for that to happen again. Yeah, I bet. Well, hopefully sometime in the the spring or summer when things kind of straighten themselves out, I'd love to see, like, you know, you guys should do some kind of live YouTube stream or something like that. Get that done so everybody can see. Yeah, we probably should. We're we're old school when it comes to music. (laughs) I know, but I, like, as someone that's enjoyed a lot of your records in the the last few years, And I've seen some of your live performances. It's so rad. I think it'd be great if, if you guys could do something like that cool. next year sometime. Well, maybe we will. I appreciate it. And I really like the fact that you that you appreciate my music. Thanks, Dennis. Absolutely, man. All right, Gary. This was a ton of fun. It's always great to catch up with you, buddy. And uh, I'm glad you're staying safe, isolated on your mountain there. And uh, hope to talk to you again in the spring when uh, everything is a little bit saner indeed you know i'm optimistic that we're going to turn things around both with the pandemic and with our politics and 
And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to playing some music and doing some more fun stuff in machine learning. So I appreciate letting having this conversation. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Anytime, man. Take care, Gary. Bye. While you were 